Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for giving us your holy word and preserving it for us providentially through all the centuries so that we have in our hands the very words of eternal life. May we receive their truth with faith and love, lay them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 20. Again, Exodus 20, verse 13. Exodus 20, verse 13. Exodus 20, verse 13. This is God's word. You shall not murder. May God bless the reading of his holy word. First, I want to review briefly what we covered last week. It's been said that the Westminster Larger Catechism, its treatment of the Ten Commandments, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, exposition of biblical Christian ethics ever penned by human beings on this planet. And when the theologians who wrote the Confession and then the shorter and larger catechisms, when they, when they wrote that larger catechism, if you've not read it before, I want to encourage you to do that. But if you haven't read it, you don't know how much larger it really is. We're talking many, many times larger than the shorter catechism. Those 123 or so great theologians and pastors and scholars that we know as the Westminster divines or the Westminster theologians, they, they went from Genesis to Revelation to see exactly what is required in each commandment and what is forbidden in each commandment. And the end result of their labors is a treasure trove of biblical theology that is unparalleled in human history. Now God's law can be summarized in a much shorter fashion in those two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And those are then expanded into the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, as they're sometimes called. But what each commandment forbids and requires is then expanded further by surveying the whole Bible on each commandment. And there are many, many ways that we can commit murder besides physically killing ourselves or killing someone else. And last Sunday we looked at Murdering people's good name. You can murder someone by hurting their reputation. And then we looked at ways that we can murder people's bodies or endanger people's bodies. We also looked at all the sins that often lead to murder. And you see these sins that lead to murder in the Bible itself. Things like sinful anger, envy and discontentment, sinful hatred, etc. are the precursors of killing people. And we looked at the various ways that we murder people. That we can murder people. We can do it with our hands. We can do it with our minds. We can kill people with our tongues. We can kill people in writing. Remember how David killed Uriah? He wrote a little note to Joab. Put him in the front line. And then Nathan told David, you killed him. Now David didn't do it with his own hands or with his own sword. But he wrote a note that did it. We can murder by consenting to the mistreatment or murder of people. Remember Saul of Tarsus. Paul consented to the death of Stephen. We can murder by not hindering someone's wrongful death. Pontius Pilate was obligated by all the canons of God's justice to let Jesus go, but he didn't hinder that wrongful death, and therefore Pilate killed him. We can can murder by refusing to show mercy to people in need. Magistrates are magistrates. The courts are guilty of murder if they fail to execute capital criminals and then let them go and they commit more capital crimes. The magistrates become guilty of those murders. 
We saw circumstances last time that make murder more heinous than other murders. If you murder without cause, even the way it's described in the world, so-and-so is a a cold-blooded killer, meaning they kill for no reason. That makes it worse. Murdering while breaking an oath. Remember, the Israelites swore to the Gibeonites, we will never touch you. And then what did King Saul do? He slaughtered them. That makes it worse. Murdering public persons. Murdering pastors, murdering elders, murdering magistrates, kings. Murdering family makes murder even more heinous. Murdering the innocent, like an abortion, is a heinous crime, a heinous sin. We looked at what it is that makes murder such a terrible evil. Why is murder spoken of as such an accursed thing in scripture? It's one of the three sins that cries out to God for vengeance. Oppression and and murder and sodomy are those three. But why is it so heinous? Because man is made in God's image. And murder attacks God himself in that way. Murder makes us like the devil. What, What is the devil? The devil is a murderer. When we murder, we're like the devil, not like our father in heaven. Murder makes us accursed in this life. Murder brings misery to us and to all around us. Look at David's life after he murdered Uriah. It was misery all around. Murder is also a soul-damning sin if people guilty of it refuse to repent. But we also saw last week, murder is not the unforgivable sin. It is not an unforgivable sin. The grace of Christ is greater than murder. And God has used many murderers who repented to do great things in this world, like Moses, like Paul the Apostle. And finally, we looked at the Lord Jesus' personal identification with people. You know, Jesus identifies with other people in our lives. And that's why he said to the sheep and the goats, that great parable in Matthew 25, the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And also on the other side, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So loving the Lord Jesus is very much tied up in our love for our neighbor, our love for the other images of God Around us, And I want to encourage you all and myself, do not let guilt over the ways that you have mistreated people in the past cause you to despair of hope for the future. God is all about changing people. You know, John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, he said for the rest of his life when he came to know Christ that he could see those things. Thousands of faces of those slaves that he had captured and sold for money. They were in his dreams. They were in his mind. But what did that mean? Did that mean he just despaired? There's no hope. I'm so horrible. God could never love. No, it was fuel to the fire. Never again. From now on, I'm going to love people. I'm going to love everyone. I'm going to spend myself loving people. That huge mountain of sin had been forgiven. It caused him to become a man of, as the biographies about Newton, he was a man of incredible compassion, infinite kindness to people after that. Whatever you may be guilty of, when the fullness of God's love and his mercy, his grace, his fatherly kindness and tenderness to you and the perfect finished work of Christ, once that grips your soul, let that evil that you once indulged in or committed, let that become fuel to the fire of a new resolve. I will always be patient and gentle and kind and gracious to the people, the images of God, to Jesus all around me. Live for 
the people that you know, that God has asked you to love. Live for them, not against them. Put them first. The thing is, all of us, all of us have failed to love our neighbors. All of us have committed murder in all these different ways, in various ways. All of us have failed our parents. All of us have failed our spouses. We failed our children. We failed our siblings. We failed our churches. All of us are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment in some way or other, even if we've never actually murdered someone physically. But all of us are regularly breaking the sixth commandment in ways, uh, even if we've never actually done that, never actually killed someone. But the one in whose perfect righteousness that we are clothed, he's ready to forgive and he delights to do so. He delights to do so. And so that's from last time. This morning, we move into really a subject that's even more grave, the murder of souls. The murder of souls. So I've given you an outline there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along that way. And that, the point number two there, we're going to talk about the murder of souls for the rest of this morning's message. This is really the worst form of harm that can be done to another person by us. While our bodies can die and do die, our souls can never be annihilated. They can never cease to exist. And so the murder of the soul is doing a person spiritual harm, depriving a person of their eternal happiness or doing anything that would lead in that direction. Soul murder is done in many ways and by many different people. And so the first thing that we do to murder souls is set a bad example. You see point number two there? Soul murder is done by a bad example. And folks, we've got to get this one. Whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, or intend it or not, we are disciplers of others. We are examples to others. I don't care who you are. You are an example that somebody looks to. Somebody imitates you. How many stories could all of us tell about people that we know or about ourselves where somebody got in with the wrong crowd? Somebody started running with the wrong people. Proverbs 12, 26, the righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Now, growing up myself, going to public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, there were certain names of certain kids who were synonymous with trouble. And if someone started hanging out with so-and-so, just fill in the name, you were headed down the wrong path. One of my best friends growing up, he just didn't show up for school our junior year. He just disappeared. And I said, Where, where's so-and-so? And they said, he started hanging out with so-and-so. And everyone went, oh, we all knew what happened then. Misery loves company, and so does sin. After describing every kind of evil in a very long list of vices that, that's part of Romans chapter 1, that, that list includes sexual immorality, murder, deceit, violence, pride, they're prideful, boasters, disobedient to parents, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Paul says, they know the righteous judgment of God, that those who do those things deserve death. They not only keep doing them, but they approve of others who practice them. And so those that are given over to wickedness, they want people to go with them. They want people to follow them. They approve of others that follow them. They murder their own souls by doing that, but they also murder other people's souls by a bad example. That is every bit of violation of the sixth commandment as shooting someone is. Now, now on the other hand, some set an example that's not overtly evil or outwardly obviously evil. 
Uh, their, their lack of, of seriousness about the things of God. Uh, their lack of seriousness when families are doing family devotions at home. Things like that. They may be churchgoers and Christians, but their coldness in the things of God is a form of soul murder to those that look up to them. Their worldliness and their manners, it, it, it affects the people around them and influences them in the wrong direction. Their conversation topics and their interests influence the people around them with the same spiritual coldness, same worldliness. Even more serious is the example that is set by the ordained officers in churches, particularly pastors and elders. Now, it's very important that all of us realize our example is likely to be followed by anyone who looks up to us, whether we have any position of influence in the church or not. Anyone that looks up to you is likely going to imitate certain things that you do. Listen to God's word. Listen to this passage. If you're a note taker, write this down. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, not, not having an ecclesiastical high hand and you will obey everything, but rather being examples to the flock. That word example is the Greek word tupas. It's where we get the word type. So the elders of the church, the officers of the church, they are to be a type, an example of what every, everyone should want to be. Everyone should want to be just like their elders. Isn't that frightening, Jim and Roger? Everyone should want to be just like us. If elders do not set a godly example, if they don't set a good example of self-control, of godliness, of prayer, of attendance, of priorities, they are guilty of soul murder. By their bad example. We are an example to others. Not only in our day-to-day -day conduct. Conversations and priorities. But also how we handle conflict. How we love our wife. How we disciple our children. And how much we love our church family. Soul murder is done by bad examples. And not just by outwardly evil wicked people. That influence people badly. It's also done by those that are supposed to lead and they're cold in their example. They're, they're not very godly in it. There's too much worldliness in it. You know, Jesus rebuked in very strong, very hard terms, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, the elders of Israel, not just because they were spiritually dead, which they were, and hellbound. The Lord's most ferocious words toward them were because they set a terrible example that other people followed. That's what got him the most about them. Yeah, they're dead in their sins. They're unregenerate. They don't understand the Bible. They don't even care that I'm doing miracles in front of them. But they're leading others astray. And that really upset the Lord. They murdered other people's souls by doing that. In Matthew 18, 5, Jesus said, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Jesus does not like soul murderers. People who set a bad example for the people of God. Now, having said that, we're always accountable to God for our own sins. I can never blame my examples or blame other people. But one of those great sins that we can commit is moving or leading others to sin. 
or tempting them to sin or hindering them from seeing and knowing the truth. Jesus was deeply troubled and he had great anger toward the teachers of Israel because they were causing these little ones who believed in Jesus to sin. They were leading them astray. And he's even clearer in Luke eleven fifty two. He says, woe to you lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. So the teachers, when they hinder people from knowing God, that dreadfully provokes the Lord, and that is murder. They took away the key of knowledge, he told them. You guys are are a hindrance to people understanding the Bible. You want to sound so deep and so profound, but you're taking away the key of knowledge. And nobody can read the Bible and understand it now. These experts in the law, these lawyers, they made the Bible so confusing that they effectively locked up its true meaning and threw away the key. They hindered people who were interested in the truth. And they took away the key of knowledge for other people. And hence, they became their soul murderers. But Jesus still has more to say. Matthew 23, verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Jesus pronounced great woes upon such people because they were a bad example. And they murdered souls by that bad example. And when the people who are supposed to be the primary spiritual mentors, teachers, and examples for others, when they turn out to be bad examples, they murder people's souls by their influence. Not by directly trying to, but by their influence. So that's the first way we can murder people's souls. A bad example. An overtly bad example or a spiritual example that's kind of cold and lethargic. Point three, soul murder is done by enticing others. Soul murder is also done by enticing others. Let me just read God's word to you. Please soak this in and listen carefully. Proverbs 7, 7. Listen carefully to this. I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. And he took the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him. And with an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I have spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. And immediately he went after her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now this youth, whoever this is here, is responsible for this sin. He's responsible for his foolishness, responsible for his lack of self-control. He's responsible for taking the path to her house. He's responsible for not turning his back to her and walking away when she tries to grab him. But she enticed him by her harlot attire and by her aggressive behavior. 
Verse 13 says she caught him. She grabbed him and kissed him. She's seductive with the way she's dressed, with her words, with her behavior. And she does so with an impudent face, it says there. That Hebrew word that's translated impudent is azaz. Azaz means insolent, defiant, smug, bold. She's reckless with her own soul and wants him to be reckless with his. With a defiant face, she comes out and says all this. Confident defiance of everything that's holy. And the young man is enticed. He's enticed. He's guilty. But so is she. People are soul murderers when they entice others to sin. And dear congregation, if you or me, if we see someone being enticed and we say nothing, we're guilty of soul murder too. If we see someone going down the path, headed in the wrong direction, and we don't say anything, we're just as much murdering their souls as the seductress. Proverbs 20, 16. Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger. Don't you love that? Hide his clothes. Now he can't leave his house. Take his garment. Do whatever's in your power. Don't let him go down that path. Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. In other words, do what's in your power to stop people from rushing into sin, which they've been enticed to commit. Better are the reproofs of a friend than the kisses of a harlot. Soul murder is done by enticing others to sin. Soul murder is also done by seeing someone being enticed and doing nothing. If you see me, if I see you heading off the tracks, let's go get each other and smack each other in the head and get each other back on the track. Fourthly, ministers of the gospel are often soul murderers in several ways. This is the last part of my message to you. This is a key part. Ministers of the gospel have a particular danger of becoming soul murderers. And I've given you three points there as to how they often do this. This is convicting stuff to think about. The first way that ministers of the gospel are often soul murderers is, number one, by starving people of God's word. 1 Peter 5, 2, we just read it. It says, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God. You know what that word means? Poimino there in, in Greek means to lead them to pasture, meaning feed them. So the elders, you feed the people the bread of life from scripture, from God's word. And so if we're not regularly opening up the word of God, reading the word of God, expositing the word of God, applying it, we're guilty of soul murder if we don't do that. We're supposed to do that. Lead them to pasture. The minister is to feed the people from God's word. They are to be the opposite of what the lawyers were in Israel. They don't take away the key of knowledge. They help people understand the Bible. And they starved the people there in Israel, the priests and the lawyers and the Pharisees, they starved people of God's word in that way. Shepherds and ministers can murder people's souls by starving them to death. Some of the final words that Paul wrote, some commentators think this was just a few weeks before his death. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, listen to God's word. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now, why would such a, a strongly worded charge be needed? I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. I mean, if he's trying to get Timothy's attention, I'm sure he had it after that introduction. 
And then he simply gives them that imperative. Preach the word. Why is that charge needed for ministers? Because very often in the church, just like in Israel long ago, people will get to where they don't want the word. They get to where they don't want it anymore. Really? In the church? Yes, in the church. People will no longer want the word of God and they won't want sound doctrine anymore. 2 Timothy 4, 3. Here's what Paul says. This Holy Spirit speaking. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They won't want what you have to say anymore. They'll find someone else who will tell them what they want. And it says, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So that's actually going to happen in the church. I mean, that's not outside the church that, that they're turned aside to fables. They've, they're already turned aside to fables. But in the church, that's going to happen? Yes. And Paul warned Timothy, this is going to happen even in the churches that I planted, that Peter planted, that Paul and Barnabas planted. They're going to have people that arise that don't want sound doctrine anymore. People that get sick of predestination, sick of justification. I remember reading an article in Christianity Today, and a, a local pastor said, you know, people just aren't interested in things like justification and sanctification and, and the Christian life and things like that. And you think, and it's our job to move heaven and earth to get them interested in it, isn't it? And if they're not, then let them leave. You know, when Jesus gave people the hard doctrine and they all walked away, he didn't run after them. What did, what did I do? What did I say? What did I say? That, that bothered you or offended you? Please come back. It's let them go. When the ears of people begin to itch, it's a sad fact. There will always be, the, the text of scripture says, heaps of teachers who will be willing to give them what they want. And those teachers with those people will turn away from the truth and they will tell people the lies that they want. And I want to tell you, teachers that do that will always be very popular. Very popular. They were popular in Israel. They're popular today. But they're under the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God because they are soul murderers. Ministers of the gospel must never starve the people of Scripture no matter how they respond to it. The calling is so simple when you're a pastor. It's so simple. You open the Bible, you read it, preach it, defend it. You make God's meaning in each passage clear to the people so they can understand it. Regardless of what happens, that's what you do. You are a herald of somebody else's message, the king's message. You better not mess it up. But you do that knowing it is inevitable. People will eventually get tired of it and they will want you to change the Bible and change its message. And Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit's guidance, said the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And please hear me. If ministers like Timothy or anyone else called to the sacred office give in to that, they are soul murderers. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is, Timothy, don't become a soul killer. Preach the word. Be faithful to God's message no matter what happens. Because the time's coming when people won't want to hear it anymore. When Paul exhorted the Ephesian elders, <laughs> that passage in Acts 20 is one of the most moving passages in Scripture. It's right before he goes off to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to be captured and beat up and everything else. And so he, he gathers the, the elders of the church at Ephesus and he tells them in Acts 20, 26, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men. 
Now, why was he so confident that that was true? The next verse, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I delivered his message. I didn't change it. I'm innocent of anyone that goes to hell. When the Judaizers arose and added circumcision and other works to faith as the means of salvation, as the means of justification, that was what 2 Timothy 4 is referring to. Those Judaizing false teachers could no longer endure sound doctrine. And Paul did not give in to them even for one hour, Galatians 2.4 says. Instead, he opposed them. He defended the gospel. He called the church to get rid of them now. And he encouraged them and all future Christians for the rest of human history. Galatians 5.1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. I want to tell you, I'm working on my first overture ever. I want to see something added to the BCO if this is possible. And it's going to be a clause that enables us to get rid of false teaching quickly. Not four or five years later after study committees have, have allowed it to fester and ruin a denomination. There's got to be a way that we can not endure sound doctrine for an hour. So if someone stands up and says, I'm gay, we can get rid of them at that meeting. There's got to be a way to do that. Because that's what they did in scripture. And therefore, we have to be able to do that. So pray for me. Pray that, that I'll word that one correctly. That's why Paul could say with such confidence, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I didn't put up with false gospels for one hour, let alone eight years. This is why every minister of the gospel takes a vow. We covered that in that series we did on vows. Vow number six. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining, that means never changing, the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. If you say yes to that, God's going to hold you to it. So when people make the decision that they can no longer endure sound doctrine, ministers must, no matter what the cost, preach the word in season and out of season. You know what that phrase means there? In season and out of season. It means when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. This is what you do. You deliver my message when it's convenient, when it's inconvenient. You convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering, with all patience and teaching. If ministers give in to the pressure to preach what the itching ears long to hear, they become soul murderers. And Paul said what ought to burn in the heart of every minister, every elder, every Christian. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And I would add, woe is me if I don't defend it, too. And I'll tell you, the cold-hearted indifference to fatal departures from biblical doctrines related to the gospel, doctrines related to creation, homosexuality, with so little protest being heard from the multitude of gospel ministers in our country today, it's both heart, heartbreaking and terrifying. It's one thing if lay people are not comfortable speaking about such things, but when the ordained and called servants of the word will not open their mouths to speak in defense of our Lord's honor and in defense of the salvation of lost souls, that's quite another. Ministers, therefore, can be very guilty of soul murder by starving the people of the word of God and not preaching it when it's inconvenient for them to do so. So that's the first thing. We can starve people of God's word. The second way ministers can murder souls. Second, by poisoning people directly with false doctrine. Ministers are guilty of soul murder when they preach false 
doctrine. Liberals and progressives rob the Bible and rob God's people of the Bible's divine inspiration. They rob people of the supernatural miracles of Christ. They rob people of the virgin birth of Christ. They rob people of the soul-saving, life-transforming power of the gospel. And they also rob the Lord of his life-transforming power and his power to liberate people from slavery to every kind of sin. All deniers of God's sovereign grace, his unconditional electing grace, rob God's grace of its glory in the salvation of sinners. A minister who avoids tough issues or downplays the controversial topics of his day is a soul murderer. Not so much by what he says, but by what he doesn't say. But someone who directly preaches and teaches false doctrine is always guilty of soul murder directly. 2 Peter 2.1 But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. That's a promise. Isn't that sad? But it's a fact. There will be false prophets and teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Notice that passage says this is a promise. Just as there were false teachers among Israel, there will be among you. They will be there and they will be secretive. They don't announce their presence. They don't say, hi, I'm here to deceive you. They will not have blood dripping from fangs sticking out of their mouths. They will not be dark and sinister characters. They will be kind and friendly welcoming and inviting and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies the holy spirit is warning his church they will secretly bring in destructive doctrines and that's peter's second letter second peter paul said the same thing about the judaizers galatians 2 4 it says that they came in by stealth they came in secretly to spy out our liberty to bring us into bondage to this false system ministers Murder souls with false doctrine in two very important ways. Number one, by teaching false doctrine. Number two, by failing to condemn known false doctrine. And I think primarily it's the second one. By failing to condemn known false doctrine. If I know that someone's a false teacher, and I know people that I shepherd listen to them or read them, I'm guilty of soul murder if I don't warn you about them. It's as simple as that. Ministers, just like every Christian in the world, are accountable We are accountable not just for what we teach, but for what we tolerate. I'm accountable to God for what I don't want to talk about, for what I'm willing to to turn a blind eye to. You all have heard me talk a lot about Machen, J. Gresson Machen, the great defender of the Christian faith 100 years ago against the rise of liberalism. Machen pointed out, and he's quite right about this, that every minister of the gospel is responsible for what is taught in every pulpit in the denomination in which he ministers. I am responsible for what is taught in every pulpit in the denomination that I minister in. Machen called that the corporate witness of the church. And he wrote this, quote, No one is walking uprightly in accordance with the truth of the gospel who acquiesces in the present corporate witness that is false. End quote. Why did he say that? What does he mean by that? He means it's a sin. It is a sin against God to be in a denomination that tolerates serious doctrinal error. By saying you are implicitly endorsing that error no matter what you say. And the reason that Machen had to go and say this and talk about the corporate witness of the church is a hundred years ago, 
A hundred years ago, people came to him and said, look, we have a good church. Our church is orthodox. We're sound. We have a good presbytery. We don't agree with all this progressive liberal stuff that's going on at the highest level. And as long as they don't require us to do bad stuff and they don't require us to give money to anything, we're just going to hang around. People said that to Machen a hundred years ago. Does that sound familiar? That is why to this day, the PCUSA still has just shy of 9,000 congregations. 9,000. In a denomination with openly homosexual ministers that promotes ISIS worship. Why? Why is it still so big? We have a good church. We have a good presbytery. Our, our church would never do this. We're, we're solid. Our presbytery is good. Machen called that functional independency. <laughs> you guys aren't Presbyterians then. Just take that off the sign outside your church. He said you're promoting a corporate witness that is false. It's promoting false doctrine to be in a denomination with openly homosexual pastors in it. And we can say all we want. We don't agree with that. We would never endorse that. We have a good church. We have a good presbytery. But by staying, you are endorsing it. Because while you may say you don't agree with it yourself, by staying, you are in fact letting all the people that you influence, all the people that you're an example to, you're letting them know, yes, I don't agree with that. I would never endorse it. But it's tolerable. We can be in union with people that are good. I would never promote it myself. But this isn't a showstopper. This is not worth splitting over. Lo and behold, we hear the same arguments now. And they're just as false today as they were then. We may say we don't agree with the scandalous stuff going on in the General Assembly, like so many said to Machen. But by staying, you're endorsing them. And you are explicitly letting people know that these things are not serious enough for us to breach fellowship. But I want to tell you, and I'll tell you, um, <clears throat> having been a ruling elder for over 20 years now, I would never have thought 20 years ago I'd have to say this. Having openly homosexual pastors who promise to be celibate in your denomination is serious enough to leave over. Okay? It is. And if you stay, you're endorsing it. You can't hide behind your church and your presbytery. You can't do that. Machen said that, and he's right. Who would ever have thought you'd have to say something like that? Well, that which was unthinkable to previous generations becomes thinkable in the present and then becomes commonplace in the next. Just think what our children and grandchildren will think is normal. Think what they'll be okay with tolerating if we tolerate it now. Ministers and elders can be soul murderers in those two ways, teaching false doctrine directly and also tolerating false doctrine and failing to condemn it the way they should. The Apostle Paul could say with confidence, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because he didn't tolerate soul-damning error ever. Not even for an hour did he ever tolerate it. He positively taught the whole counsel of God. And when false doctrine reared its head, he did not tolerate it even for an hour so that the truth of the gospel would continue in the Christian church. And I shudder to think what Paul would write today if he heard people say, well, we don't endorse all this stuff. We don't endorse all this heresy. Our church is solid. Our presbytery is solid. I assure you, a Galatian-esque letter would be forthcoming. Point three, ministers can be soul murderers by infecting people with scandalous and hypocritical lives. You know, Jesus hated hypocrisy. He hated hypocrisy. And we ought to as well. That Greek word, hypocrites, hypocrite, it literally refers to a pretender, an actor, an actor. 
What's an actor? What's a pretender? Someone who preaches one thing and then lives in violation of that flagrantly and without apology. Before Jesus pronounced the terrible judgment that would come against Jerusalem in Matthew 24, he pronounced seven great woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. Remember what he calls them at the front of every one of those woes? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you pretenders. You act like you know me, you don't. You act like you love Moses and the law, you don't. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will have the greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Warm and gentle Jesus, eh? Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Down in verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. And then finally, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. For even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. That's what Jesus thought of the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel. And dear congregation, this is why those qualification lists for ministers and elders, for deacons, that's why you all have to know those. You got to know the, the character of the individuals you nominate. We should not, we must not nominate anyone to be an elder or deacon if we don't know what they're like. If we don't know what their marriage is like. If we haven't heard them open the Bible and teach from it before. The word of God is so clear on this matter and yet so often those qualification lists in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, they're not known and they're, they're not understood Sometimes the men are so scarce and the spiritual needs are, are so great that we'll, we'll nominate anybody to be an elder or a deacon. And that's why the word of God tells us, 1 Timothy 5.22, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Why does it say that? Because they were doing that. We do that today at times. We can't do that. Because the, the needs are so great and the, the men are so scarce, it's... We can't do that. Don't lay hands on anyone hastily. Make sure you really know who these guys are because they can become soul murderers by, by being hypocrites, by living a scandalous life. And Jesus, you look at, read through the Gospels, his most savage rebukes came to the religious leaders who were hypocrites. The damage they can do is incalculable. It's devastating. Hosea 4.9, one of the, the last rebukes given to the northern kingdom before it was destroyed by Assyria and it shall be like people, like priests, and vice versa. If the examples in local churches are not spiritual, if they're not godly, if they're not patient when wronged, if they don't have hearts of gold and backbones of steel, if they won't fight when they need to, if they won't have hard conversations when they have to, 
If, they, if they're not able to teach the Bible, if they don't know church history and theology, if they don't know how to do biblical interpretation, if they're not able to, to defend sound doctrine, if they can't refute those who contradict it, and if they're not willing to stand for the truth with a few or alone, if need be, I ask you, what good are they then? They're soul murderers, according to Jesus. And this brings us to the end of the murder of souls we can do to others. Just to summarize for you, we can murder people's souls by setting a bad example for them. Souls are murdered when they're enticed to sin. Ministers especially are able to be murderers of souls by starving people of God's word, by poisoning people with false doctrine, and also by tolerating false doctrine, and also by living scandalous or hypocritical lives. We become soul murderers. Next Sunday is a a very large topic as well. We're going to look at the way the sixth commandment can be broken against ourselves how we can break it against ourselves, murdering ourselves. Remember the Shorter Catechism's great summary that we read together. The sixth commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve my own life and the lives of others. So I'm obligated by God to preserve my own life and my own soul. And thankfully, I want to give grace the final word here. The Lord Jesus' righteousness, that's what we see described in the catechisms, the larger catechism. You read those, those long answers to what is forbidden, what is required as a detailed description of the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's what he always did and what he never did. We see in these commandments our tutor, our teacher, our schoolmaster, which drives us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith since justification by law keeping is off the table. These commandments are so far out of our reach that we might as well try to jump over the moon. When we used to do those good news clubs, one of the ways I would try to illustrate how impossible it is for us to be good enough for God is I would take an eraser from the chalkboard and put it in front of me, right in front of my toes, and ask the kids, you guys think I can jump over this? Say, yeah, yeah. So I would do it, and then I would take it and throw it all the way to the other side of the room. You think I can jump over it now? No, there's no way you can. I said, what if I worked out really hard? And what if I really did a lot of conditioning? Maybe in a year I could, I could jump far enough to do it. And I would try several times and would fall away far short and just point it out. That's what man's attempts to be right with God by works is all about. We will always fall short. You might as well try to jump over the moon. It can't happen. Romans 3.23, that great Bible verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even when we're at our most sanctified moment, we still can't get close to the eraser. You can't get close to the glory of the thrice holy God. Not even close to it. And the shed blood of Jesus, thankfully, is always sufficient. And the law always shows us how much we need him and his finished work. Listen to the rest of that passage. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace. And if we worked for it in any way, it wouldn't be a gift anymore. The fact that it's a gift shows it's not by works, not by our keeping of the sixth commandment, not by anything that we do. Justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then one final passage, I just, I can't deny, I just have to read it to you. Galatians 3, 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. That Greek word tutor, pedagogos, that's where you get the word pedagogy. Someone majors in piano pedagogy, it means that they're going to be a teacher. The law is our pedagogos. It's portrayed in ancient Greek art as the guy you hired with a big stick to follow your kids around. And he would smack them with it if they got out of line. That's what the law does. It's constantly driving us to the cross. 
This is where justification is. Not in your law keeping, but in Christ. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we would be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So I hope you see that. Looking at the law, it's always going to drive us to rest upon the finished work of our dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you that Christ satisfied the requirements and what is prohibited in the sixth commandment. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice in that, to remember him always, and to seek with all the means that you've given to us to be more godly as we seek to keep this commandment as a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.